Dr. Beebe, and thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Fine, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. So this speaker series is focused on the shadow. And just for anyone who's joining us who might be unfamiliar with the concept, how would you describe the shadow in your own words? Well, (laughs) I once gave a lecture in New York and a very nice and wonderful Jungian analyst colleague introduced my lecture. And somehow he seemed to be afraid that the audience wouldn't get what I was talking about. So he gave a lecture on the shadow uh, to the group as part of his introduction to me. And his lecture went on quite a long time. It was, you know, it took about 10 minutes when an introduction usually takes about two minutes. And I think there was some anxiety that anything I would say would not quite meet the mark of what it would take to introduce a Jungian audience. So there was a very clear understanding of Jung's idea of the shadow. And finally, realizing he'd gone on rather long, he said to me, uh, well, do you have anything more to say? Well, all the time he'd been talking, there was a movie screen behind him because I was going to show scenes from... uh, in fact, the whole of Alfred Hitchcock's notorious and discuss it from the standpoint of Hitchcock's illumination of the shadow in that amazing 1946 American film. So he, because he was standing with sort of a, a spotlight on him and the screen was behind, there was this enormous uh, silhouette on the screen of his. And I said, well, you know, well, you know that's the shadow. I said to him and to the audience. So that was kind of a moment of what is the shadow? Yeah, the sh- it is. It's the in sight for everybody else. Yeah. Your, your work with psychological types really takes the shadow and integrates it into the psychological model. So could you speak a little bit about how you developed your eight function model and maybe even some of the pioneering work that Jung did to establish psychological types? Well, in my work, the psychological types is an integral expression of something that I'm very interested in, which is moral integrity. And I wrote a book on integrity in depth before I wrote a book on psychological types. It's not because I hadn't been working on psychological types. I had, in fact, been working on psychological types since about 1974, and that book was published in 1992. I didn't publish my book on psychological types until 2016 because I was really interested in getting the model right. But what I found when I was writing Integrity in Depth, and the reason it has that interesting couple of words at the end, in depth, is that I found that most people have the Polonius idea of integrity, to thine own self be true, and it follows as the night the day that thou canst not then be false to any man. (laughs) And now, aside from the fact that that Polonius didn't say, or woman, (laughs) and a lot of other things happen in Hamlet, and that the speech is put into the mouth of Polonius, who's sort of the establishment courtier, the, the, uh, the vizier of, uh, of uh, uh, the corrupt King Claudius, I, I came to feel that, that that idea of integrity is really not true. Simply being true to yourself is not a guarantee that you will not be false to others. And that in fact, most people have a notion of integrity that I would call persona integrity. And from the standpoint of psychological types in the days of American uh, pragmatic uh, self-realization, when uh, Jung really came to his own in the 80s, which was a time of rampant individualism and individual uh, accumulation of wealth and status and corners of the market of, of, of ideas even, people were were getting their MBTI profile, which types their first two functions, their dominant and auxiliary, and pretty much stopping there and saying, 
I am this, therefore I do that. And as long as they were living up to those two functions, they were being themselves. And there was a tremendous confusion of identity with integrity. So identity is an important thing. But in these days of identity politics, perhaps it's all identity politics where everyone is asserting rampantly their own identity. Something we all notice that something about the general integrity is lost. So the general integrity only comes when you look beyond what you're certain of and see what else is there. Now, one way to look at that is to add on the third and the fourth function and connect to uh, what I call a spine of personality when you haven't realized that you have a dominant function and an inferior function or what Jung called capacity and incapacity. And so by realizing the self, you realize that the ego, no matter how strong its identity is very limited. So that's one way is to work on the third and the fourth function, at least in the way of even not even trying to develop them so much as to realize their autonomy and their, their, the way they always trip us up when we think we're wonderful. So a lot of people think that that's the way to enhance the integrity is just to add in the third and fourth functions. The trouble is that no matter how, how well you develop yourself along your own preferred lines, the more you're gonna cast a gigantic shadow because there's a price to be paid for differentiating a dominant function that might say in my case be extroverted and auxiliary function that's introverted. And yes, a third function that's extroverted again and an inferior function that's extroverted. I can know all those things about myself, but that's four of eight possible functions. What about the other functions? What about the fact that if I have an extroverted dominant, where's, which in my case is extroverted intuition, what about introverted intuition? That's in shadow for me. And I start saying nasty things about uh, the Jungians her too archetypal or this or that. And, and, and then what am I doing there? I'm simply talking about what I won't deal with in myself as a negative in someone else. So already, good as I am with extroverted intuition, I can be quite uh, shadowy in the way I use my introverted intuition. And then it gets into my thinking. I, I happen to have a very well-developed introverted thinking function, but I'm practically allergic to extroverted thinking. And there's a problem in that. Some of my work, my papers and, and, and lectures and so forth, um, uh, where's the organization? Where is this going? People need more guidelines than that. And I can't simply say that that's other people's problem. I, I have to make it my problem. Take my third function. My third function is extroverted feeling. I can be very nice. I can be very sweet. I have a poor Eternus extroverted feeling. I can be almost marvelous in my empathy when I'm in a good mood until I plunge down into the other side and I'm in that terrible abject and sour place of the roller coaster that is the third function. That's like Peter Pan in my case. It needs a shadow sewn on. What's a shadow? Introverted feeling. I have a very hard time knowing how I feel. And sometimes I act that out in all kinds of inappropriate judgments and so forth. Then I get down to my inferior function. Yes, I'm famously aware of my introverted sensation being inferior, and it certainly is, and it's almost hilariously inferior. Uh, I, people used to tell stories about me in medical school about all the things that, that I would do with my crazy introverted sensation function. We get kind of proud of, of our inferiority that we know about. But what about my shadow of that, my extroverted sensation, my demonic extroverted sensation? Oh, my God. I, whoa, what a problem I can create just going somewhere and instinctively always going in the wrong direction. It's just unbelievable. And it can often throw things completely off. I mean, I've traveled thousands of miles to go to a, to a lecture that I barely make because I realize it wasn't the following day and that type of thing. And, and you know, and, and why don't I at least look at my notes and my folder that I've carefully prepared because I'm too arrogant to look at anything as extroverted sensate as a piece of paper. So I have to look at the undermining quality of myself. Suddenly I have a whole set of shadow functions that, I, that are constantly behind. Only one of them am I actually ashamed of, and that's my inferior function. The rest, I proudly act out all the time. So an eight function model forces you 
to see the other side of your identity. And that's where you can maybe stop being quite so false to your fellow man and woman, is if you look at that, not if you, to thine own self be true, that's a trap. And that's why Shakespeare put that in uh, Polonius's mouth. And Polonius kind of was killed at about in the same uh, 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 because he was hiding behind a uh, snooping behind a, uh, the heiress while, while Hamlet is confronting uh, his mother. And there is Polonius behind the curtain uh, uh, snooping so he can tell King Claudius what tell me that's integrity. Tell me that's being true to oneself and tell me, tell me that's not being false, especially to the woman, to the, to the queen and to her son. And so, and he gets himself killed for that. Well, there's the shadow. There's the shadow of persona integrity. That's what I'm working on with this eight function model. It gives us a way to look at it. Can you explain how archetypes factor into the eight function model? Well, archetypes are what drive consciousness. It, 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 I think the, it, it's a, it, you know, it was important to Jung to take the unconscious seriously. And therefore he uses the term unconscious all the time in a way that suggests several things that the unconscious is that part of us which is autonomous, which is creative, which is purposive and above all, which is real. And all those things are great uh, uh, contributions that Jung made. But the thing he doesn't say is the reason he takes the unconscious seriously is it's the ultimate reservoir of consciousness. That's what people, that's why I make the uh, subtitle of, of uh, my book, um, Energies and Patterns in Psychological Type, the reservoir of consciousness. So when you realize that all consciousness, all consciousness is actually driven into being by what we regard as the unconscious, but which are really the archetypes, which have somehow codified or accumulated the consciousness of the species over time. And you can get into whether that's Lamarckian inheritance, which Jung kept denying and then seeming to agree with at the same time in the funny way he has of speaking on two sides of the same subject with his hermetic uh, nature uh, of writing, you have to accept that most of what we claim as our consciousness has already been driven into being by some kind of hardwired archetypal force. So if I happen to have a rather strong, dominant, extroverted intuition, and I do, uh, that I can proudly display and that really turns out to be quite quite good at sniffing out possibilities and enabling them to come into being one has to understand that from my earliest days my mother loved that side of me and so I was her hero at a very early age and the hero archetype became terribly important to me and since my father was a military man and didn't think much of my intuition because he was a rational type, extroverted thinking and his auxiliary function was introverted sensation. And I didn't seem like exactly the son he had in mind. Nevertheless, even he could not deny that I was heroic in a way that made sense to it, to a, uh, to a military officer. And in the end, he was quite proud of my achievements and my ability to direct myself toward a goal and get there. And so between my mother and my father, um, they both had different reasons for, for encouraging the hero archetype in their son. So that hero archetype was available to me and it was the force that through the green fuse drove the flower of, as Dylan Thomas might've said, of my original uh, individuation of, of function one and later function two. I mean, so up until the time I was 40 years old, the one thing you could say about me is that I was absolutely driven to uh, realize my dominant and my auxiliary functions. Now, um, that's a hero archetype, and it's also my attempt to develop a father archetype of my own. And I spent a lot of time 
becoming my own man, and I, and I, and I was successful at that. Um, but I can't claim that I'm wonderful. The energy was, was archetypal that was driving me. And I also had to examine how much I wanted to simply be identified with the archetype of the uh, hero and the, and, the, uh, and, and the good father. Worthy things, if done well, and definitely helpful in having a strong ego, which I had been trained by the psychology of my day, which was ego psychology when I was in college and medical school, the Freudian model of ego psychology was what everybody talked about. So I got myself a strong ego, but how about the part of me that was too identified with capacity, everything Jung is talking about, the spirit of the times being capacity in the Red Book. What about my incapacities and also what about the cost to myself and to others of that one-sided focus on, uh, on achievement? So I had to get a chance by looking at my dreams to see knocking at the door uh, 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 of my psyche asking for help other sides of my personality. I remember once there was a very strong heroic man who was trying to make love to a, a woman and she just finally said to him, I can't keep up. Well, that kind of message from your unconscious makes you listen to another archetype altogether. And that's how I began to connect with the anima archetype through a series of dreams that showed me the feminine just in me was not interested in that constant uh, uh, heroic drive. In that way, my psyche was trying to create a balance, but I can't take credit for that either. I did, I'm not a wonderful person who saw through himself. My own unconscious said that. So it was coming from below, coming from archetypes telling me to pay attention. And that's how I discovered my introverted sensation. And that's and that it had needs too. And among them was needs for rest, needs not to be driven, needs, needs to just be and have things in place and just peace. So all that is consciousness in what we call the unconscious, carried by archetypes, giving the conscious mind that we thought we is, is conscious a chance to grow beyond itself. I think that's the basic Jungian idea. So it's all driven by, so when I say every consciousness comes on the back of an archetype. I don't think I'm saying anything that, that extraordinary. Perhaps it's extraordinary that I know some of what they are in the different places, but I think it's the basic Jungian idea. And why wouldn't it be that way? Why wouldn't we want, why wouldn't our, we evolve the capacity to draw on the history of the human race uh, in terms of what worked and what didn't work over the million years we've had a chance to develop something like a human uh, being. And so uh, why wouldn't we listen to that? That seems to me natural. It, to me, it's, it doesn't seem mystical. It seems quite scientific to me to think that that's how, how it works. Dr. Beebe, what would you say is the best way for someone to begin figuring out their personality type and what common pitfalls should they be aware of as they're working to type themselves? Well, there are two ways that I can think of that I, the commonest way talked about by Jungians is keep an eye on what you're terrible at, <laughs> because often knowing your inferior function is the way to know your, your superior function. That's one thing. Just the thing that never works. See what doesn't take training. And if you can get your inferior function, you, you already know something. I, I think anyone who knows enough about type that spent about a, a 24 hours with me would have no trouble discovering an, an, an inferior introverted sensation function. And by that, I mean, um, watch what happens to each piece of paper I touch and write something down on and you'll know how inferior my introverted sensation is. It's a filing function among other things and you will watch a very funny, funny uh, game going on with the way I play with objects and lose and find them over and over again. And how I stop in the middle of something and go on to something else and on and on. It's not hard to find. If you know that every one of the eight functions implies a polarity and there's another end to that polarity and you've memorized them and you know that 
if you have an inferior introverted sensation, by definition, you have a dominant extroverted intuition, then you could say, well, I've certainly established that John Beebe has an inferior introverted sensation. I wonder what his extroverted intuition is like. And you will find that you have thought something and I suddenly just bring it up and you can't imagine how I would ever do that. In other words, you might've been thinking of Lake Champlain and someday I say, well, you know, if you're driving up to some wonderful place like Lake Champlain and you practically faint, how in the world did he know I was thinking about Lake Champlain? Where did he get that? Well, I've been doing that my whole life and I've shocked many, many people by bringing up just the example that had crossed their own mind and it just, pops into my, I just, I don't know, it just is what occurs to me. I have no, I, I had no idea that I'm coasting someone, uh, how do you call it, coasting, uh, what, what, what word am I, like surfing someone else's uh, psyche, but I am, I, I can ride the waves of other people's psyches and it's, and, and of collective psyches, I just can. And uh, so you can verify that, that my dominant function is extroverted intuition. And it begins to say, okay, we see the typology there. But you do have to know that if you've got dominant extroverted feeling, you have inferior introverted thinking, you have to know that if you have um, dominant extroverted sensation, you have inferior introverted intuition. And you also have to know that if you have dominant extroverted thinking, you have uh, uh, inferior introverted feeling. Then if you turn those upside down, you have basically eight spines. And I, when I teach typology, I often draw those and, and write them out so that people can see the universe from which the various spines of personality are developed. With that, you have at least a way of checking out whether a person fits the type diagnosis you give them. And that's a useful thing because if it doesn't fit, then you have to go back to the drawing board. So there's certain set rules that I get from Jung and Isabel Briggs Myers and that have stood the test of time for me. And I find it absolutely astonishing that these rules hold up. But I've, I, every time I check them out, they seem to do so. So uh, for me, I do try very hard to falsify the hypothesis and say, well, is there such a person who has dominant extroverted intuition and inferior extroverted feeling or something? I try it out. Um, and I try to be honest, but I must say, I think Jung has stumbled onto a law of nature. I don't know how he did it. And I think it's kind of wonderful. So I take it for granted that it's natural. Um, perhaps that's only because typology is some kind of myth that we are all living. And, and when, you admit, when you're living a myth, the myth is true. When you emerge from the myth, the myth is no longer true. But this seems to be the myth we are living now is that our consciousness is an emergent quality of our complexity that sorts itself out. It's self-organizing in several lawful ways. And between them, Jung and Isabel Briggs Myers figured out the basic laws. Jung figured out dominant and, and inferior function. He figured out the four functions. He figured out the attitudes it was Isabel Briggs Myers who said that they alternate at least from the dominant to the auxiliary. And it was me who, and a couple of others who felt that it doesn't stop there, that it's like a system of checks and balances. If the first is extroverted, the second will be introverted, the third will be extroverted, and the fourth will be introverted. And I find that incredibly useful. And it's also, I particularly have emphasized that when a function is used with one attitude, its shadow is the function used with the other attitude. And attitude simply means extroverted or introverted. These are laws of type that I think are actually, at least within the myth we're living, observable, predictable, and very useful. Now, someday we may outgrow that model, but it's a very useful model at the present time. And it does make a lot of things clear. You mentioned that the intense interest in MBTI, for example, might represent a confusion of integrity with identity. Has this confusion become more and more pervasive over time? 
And if so, what do you think are the causes of this? Well, a little before he died, um, let's see if I can say his name and see these senior moments, the great uh, Western writer Wallace Stegner was interviewed on the Terry Gross show. And, uh, and she asked if things had changed much in his lifetime. And he said, you know, this is a very smart man who'd been looking at the American scene for a long time. So he's an American artist. Um, he said, I don't know, uh, politics has gotten dirtier. And I think we all agree about that. I mean, it's a, it's a, <laughs> you have the irony of a Donald Trump saying he's going to Washington to drain the swamp. I mean, for example, I mean, it's, it, you know, we, the politics are, are just absolutely appalling. Uh, and uh, part of the problem is everybody is representing a different identity. And I think that's just that to me is a terrible thing. I mean, and, and, I, and I unfortunately have always felt that the sweet spot in my own politics is left of center. And of course it was easy to observe a religious right, but living around Northern California and so close to Berkeley, uh, it was pretty easy to see that there's also a religious left. And it's just the, and, and by a religious, I really don't mean what I really, what, what I would like to see religion mean because there's nothing wrong with either the traditional religions or the religious attitude. What I really mean is something like such a belief that one's own particular position is so good that everything else falls into shadow. And I think that is the shadow of identity itself. And I think that uh, that's why I'm looking for a position that I can still talk to people on the other side. So my dream world, as it is for many people nowadays, would be to have a something like a, what you have often in Europe, where they have, for example, social democrats and Christian democrats, where you would have a, a left of center party and a right of center party, and they could still talk to each other and dialogue and work things out. And each sees a bit of the shadow in the other and recognizes that the other is there to balance it. And then I think you have what I would like to see. So what I guess I'm talking about when I talk about the problem of identity is uh, when we get strongly identified with the rightness of our positions, and then suddenly they become righteous, whether they're on the left politically or the right politically. And, and that's what I mean when I use that caricature, religious. I don't mean in any way to put down anyone who is informed by faith. I'm sure I'm informed by faith of my own. I have very strong faith. Uh, uh, although I was never baptized, I, and, and therefore my parents who wanted me to choose my religion, I've studied just about every religion, and I must say I've learned from each. So it isn't that I hate religion, but I certainly hate to identify my position with, with the only one and become righteous about it. That I think is incredibly destructive. So that's what I mean by identity getting in the way. Okay, we're going to move on to the Q&A portion of this session. Please feel free to turn your cameras back on if you would like to. Um, and just FYI, we're probably not going to get through all the questions and we're not going to go through them in order. I'll try to so, be short and sweet and, and incomplete. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Beebe. All right, to start off... Um, Andre Jones, why don't you go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question. Uh, so starting with a bit of a long one, this is something I've, I've done a bit of reading on and I've written a bit of existential analysis on before. So 
Um, my question is that, so do you see that with the, the, the COVID pandemic, that there's a lot of people that are for the first time having to um, engage with their shadow and especially even reaching a point of um, having to engage with the function of individuation um, as they've gone from the, the mode of being of being in, in the conscious world, engaging with their jobs, um, their friends, sort of reality as a whole, and then put into quarantine and isolation. Um, and suddenly they're facing themselves and uh, having to look at their subconscious for the first time for many people. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of soul searching that's been done by a lot of people in society. So um, yeah, do, do you think that there's a lot, a lot more shadow work that's been going on in the last uh, 12 months because of this? Oh, I think absolutely. And I'll say it really quickly. In America, and uh, I'm not sure what part of the uh, world you come from, but uh, you sound like you might be either either Australian or English. And I, so I wonder if you have a, a background that's of another continent in North America in recent times. Could I ask that before I proceed? I'm Australian. Thank you, thank you. Well, uh, I always have found that the people in Australia are immensely psychologically minded. So you're a very psychologically minded question. And I think there's more than one way for the pandemic to be an individuating experience. I come from extroverted intuition and, and that sees the possibilities in anything. So I just have dived in with the possibilities of this and I found it a, a year where I had to stay at home and I really faithfully observed it so that I literally had no social gathering uh, at all in, in the last uh, months since March 10th, when we went started sheltering at home. I have not met anyone for lunch or dinner or had anyone visit my home. I mean, it's, I mean I've literally just stayed in my home with my partner. And that is that is absolutely the only person I see. Very rarely does anyone even come in to do any work. And no one, I just keep myself because I'm 82 years old this June and I don't want to get uh, COVID. So I've, I've played it safe and fallen madly in love with introversion. I just, I didn't know how introverted I could be. And I've just loved that for myself. But I have noticed people who have dominant extroverted sensation, which involves, as I say in my book, a process of engaging, experiencing and enjoying, that requires contact with other people. And I can, I know, and you know, a third of MBTI says about a third of Americans are extroverted in sensation dominant, another third are extroverted thinking dominant. And I think for those two types, this year has just, been a disaster in terms of having to be this introverted and, and having not to plan things that involve engaging and, and experiencing enjoying or collecting other people. No wonder so many people uh, uh, in the last administration were, 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 were just uh, defying uh, and, and going on with extroverted lives and those White House events that they had. With, like the one for Amy Coney Barrett, where everyone comes down with uh, uh, COVID after this gathering. I can see why these things occurred. They occurred because some people have never had to introvert before and don't know what to do. And I realized that all those years in Jungian analysis prepared me for this because that is also an introverted experience. But for people who have not ever had to work on their introverted side, this has been a crash course and sometimes a terrible one. Some people have actually, as you know, adolescents sometimes commit suicide because they can't meet with their friends. This has been a very difficult time. And it's taught extroverted America how little it knows about introversion. Now, I think uh, it's an advantage and a possibility for individuation, but it's also been a, like a shock to the system, a deep shock. So I hope that answers some of your question. And I'm sure the Australian situation where there's a lot of extroverted sensation is more complicated because I think you all, you have so much more from that country of connection also with introverted intuition under certain circumstances. So I think there it would be a different thing. 
All right, Ron, did you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, hey, doctor. Uh, great to talk to you. It just so happens I'm doing a deep dive into your work these days. So a nice coincidence. Thank you. Um, uh, well, I wanted to just ask your view of the hero's journey, which we talk a lot around here. I think if I'm not misunderstood, I've heard you talk about the hero differently than some others, uh, talking about our individuation and second half of life and deep shadow work uh, as really going beyond the hero, the way you use the hero, whereas others talk about the hero's journey as something that continue and that that journey itself could be deeper shadow work and uh, deeper individuation. So I'm just curious how you think about all that. And thanks. Well, I had the great good fortune to know Joseph Campbell personally, and he was a member of the uh, uh, Board of Governors of the Young Institute of San Francisco, where I trained and am still an active member as a Jungian analyst and teacher. And of course, he, uh, right from the beginning with the, the hero of the Thousand Faces and his whole many, the, in the 80s, he became very famous. He had been around teaching in San Francisco, thanks to our extended education program for a decade before that, had a role in play in making him a national figure because uh, those lectures were so successful. And certainly uh, there is something wonderful for people to find it in themselves to uh, uh, heroically uh, discover a bit of consciousness for themselves and find the, the joy in taking seriously the worth of what one can achieve. And he was himself a marvelous example. I, he, on his honeymoon, he told his, 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 his wife, he said, you know, he loved to outline things. He said, you know, I'm gonna outline everything. And he pretty much did so in his life's work. And he, it was a very heroic work. But I had another mentor who, spent a lot of time with uh, Joseph Campbell, and that was Joseph Henderson, who uh, had been analyzed by uh, C.G. Young himself and had then helped to found the C.G. Young Institute of San Francisco. And he would always qualify the idea of the hero as a stage prior to the true discovery of the unconscious and its autonomy and its strength uh, uh, and the part that can't be outlined or controlled in any way. And I, I was at a lecture that he gave back in 1970 and someone asked a question about the hero, not unlike yours. And Joseph Henderson looked at him and said, do you see how hard it is to get beyond the hero? And so that just hit me like a ton of bricks and I just have been thinking about it ever since. So I've got 50 years or more of thought about what it means to get beyond the hero. And that helped me so much to get beyond what my parents expected me to be and what therefore I expected myself to be. And when I finally got to the red book, which Jung wrote when he had crashed from his own hero trip and really was discovering that he, this great mind of his was at risk. Uh, uh, and he discovers that capacity is the spirit of the times, but incapacity is the spirit of the depths. I became part of that postmodern view that began to look beyond the hero and beyond the, the giants and, and to sort of find the pygmy within, if you could say it that way, I don't mean to be, racist or, or in any way, just to speak of something small or Lilliputian, like, like in Gulliver. We have, if you can find your smallness within, it's pretty hard to sustain a fantasy that life is about being a hero that rescues a prize. It's something else indeed. It's something else indeed. And so for me, the difference is that you have to somehow have an initiatory experience in which your original hero gives way to something like an initiate who actually, and the person who writes about this best in common writing is Ian Forster in A Passage to India, which I think is just the novel of the 20th century, if we can read it. and. 
There is a woman in there named Adela Quested who has gone to India and she makes an accusation that she's been uh, uh, sexually abused by an Indian as they were as they were in a cave. But as she really gets at to what happened in the Mirabar caves on the stand, she suddenly has to admit that the echo was such that she was so profoundly touched by the cave that she could no longer be certain whether the Indian man had touched her in any way or whether she was touched by her own sense of reality around her and, and finally has to admit on the stand she doesn't know. At that point, the English colony abandons her because the, and the Indian justice system works because the Indian man is exonerated from the very serious accusation. And if you, the reader of the novel certainly doubts that he's done what she accuses him of having done. But more important, Adela quested doubts herself. And then Forster writes about her after. And he, said, he says of her, although the hard uh, school mystery see manner remained, she had ceased to be one of those people who question life and instead allows herself to be questioned by it. In other words, she had become a real person. And I think that is the greatest description of what it means to go beyond the hero. And I think that Forster could see that long before Jung was trying to say that or Henderson or Campbell. I mean, it's an amazing book and I recommend it to everyone in these very righteous times we live in in which everybody wants to think they can question everything and that's gonna be the answer. Yeah. Um, this is a question from Aaron Day. I'm gonna read it for him. Uh, his question is, Dr. Beebe, do you have any thoughts on the so-called function loop? For example, an INFJ relying primarily on NITI while ignoring FE in an incredibly introverted personality loop. I think I talk about this, I've never heard that term before, or I don't think I have, and yet I'm having a deja vu experience, so I must have, but I never took it seriously. I've talked about this for many years and, and, and the same, but this is how I say it. And I've been talking about this for maybe for 30 years. To explain why so many people believe that the most important thing Jung had to say was that we're either extroverted or introverted and why Jung himself and the Jungians following him seem to make the mistake of saying that if your dominant function is, extrovert, is extroverted, so too will your next two functions be extroverted and therefore the only one left to carry your introverted side will be your inferior function. That was the model I was trained in originally and found didn't work. And then I came to the alternation of functions with the help of uh, Wayne Detloff, who pointed out to me in 1972, the work of Isabel Briggs Myers, and that gave, gave me to, and then I began to see that the Jungian model was wrong. So I thought to myself, but nevertheless, what about these people who are so strongly introverted and so strongly extroverted? What I realized was these are people who are using functions one and three rather than one and two. And they're, so they're using the third function as their auxiliary. So given them, and this is what you're calling the function loop, uh, uh, that, and that must have a pedigree that I need to learn about, uh, the, that's why they're doing this. Well, that was easy for me to figure out because I was like that myself. I, for a long time, I was using extroverted intuition an extroverted feeling. There was a very simple reason for that. My father was a very strong extroverted thinking type and my auxiliary function was introverted thinking. So when we were, and my father told my mother on their first date that he was gonna be president of the United States someday. And when he was a, you know, he was a military man and he kept hoping that he would have a chance to distinguish himself in combat or something. and perhaps then run for office and finally maybe end up politically. So dinner time was a very sacred time for him because at six o'clock, 
the news was on, and of course we're talking about the world of the 1940s, uh, and uh, and uh, you know we're talking about a different world. But the radio news then was something that we didn't have CNN and and, and we didn't have the internet then. So that was where he got his briefing. Well, he was away a lot during much of my childhood. And so my mother and I would talk very freely about everything and I had no, so the news would come and I would start to say what I thought about the news while it was, while the broadcast was going on. My father would say to me, shut up, son. You don't learn from people who know nothing. And so I learned that I could not bring forward my introverted thinking in my father's presence. And so, and even my mother didn't love it when I did it. She would say, you are just a child, she would say to me. So in a certain sense, what they both liked was when I was sweet Johnny with extroverted feeling. And so I could use extroverted intuition and extroverted feeling. And I realized later, I call it my work, my eternal boy function. And I developed quite a, a, a so for a long time, I was not expressing my introverted thinking. And one of the things I had to do in my analysis was get out from under the identification with being this sweet extroverted feeling saint and try to find it in the courage to say my own thoughts. And now I do all the time, but my first years in analysis was just me thinking out loud and thank God I had a male analyst who didn't say, tell me to shut up. And so I, I, I developed in analysis my second function. Uh, but so up until then, I was just extroverted intuition, extroverted feeling. So you would have seen me as just extroverted. So I think that's your loop that you're talking about. And that's the, it's the problem of the eternal boy or eternal girl, because sometimes in some families, only the mother can be the mother. Only the father can be the father. And the child cannot develop their own father's side or their own mother's side. So they, they develop their child side. And you meet lots of people like that who have a hero function and a poor eternus function. And they don't have an auxiliary parental function because it wasn't allowed. Their parents were the only game in town in the, in the family they grew up in. Many parents crush that developing. It's seen as unmannerly in children, whereas in fact, I think it should be encouraged much sooner. Yeah. Uh, Megan, would you like to unmute and ask your question? Uh, yes. So the first question that I wrote, you kind of answered as you were talking, but I was curious if you uh, could explain or expand on any sort of limitations, gaps um, that you would run into if you were looking at personality just from a four function view and not thinking about how the shadow um, influences the conversation? Well, I think that's where giving what I've dared to do because the shadow, it, it, to develop a typology of the shadow is very dangerous because everything in the shadow is connected. Jung would have said, look, the shadow is the whole unconscious. So you can't be, you can't just put this here and that there. But nevertheless, I felt that we've had to, we haven't had enough understanding of the, of the, un, of the shadow. So I've dared to do a kind of typology of the shadow in the sense of what are the archetypes of the shadow. And so the first was my greatest discovery was the opposing personality. I had no idea how oppositional I could be and, and, and until, I, until other people uh, pointed it out so many times that I realized I was gonna have to, in fact, I'm thinking of a patient in my, my practice who said to me, you love to fight. And of course he was right. But, and, uh, and I was only seeing how combative he was, but my opposing personality is, um, is the shadow side of the hero. And it has four faces, uh, but they're all kind of forms of, of a kind of oppositional defiance that I've that I developed in adolescence and it took a long time to own as actually a part of me. Um, um, and that oppositional defiant side of myself 
once came up in a dream as Barbara Streisand and, and, and actually giving my mother hell. It was a very funny, a very funny dream to, to, for me to experience and to think of my inner Barbara Streisand. Once later on, I, I began to say, well, you know, why do you know? She, she was introverted, intuitive in the dream. And she was giving my mother a lot of, a lot of trouble. And, and um, in those days, I was very, felt very put upon by my mother. And I was actually saying in my first year of analysis, you know, it takes a woman to fight a woman. And I, so I would, this, that inner woman was not my anima, it was my inner Barbara Streisand. So I thought to myself later, so I felt eventually when I knew type that that was my, the shadow side of my dominant function, my dominant function being um, extroverted, uh, intuition the shadow side of that would be introverted intuition somehow my cell phone rang with a spam call excuse me but the uh uh i thought about, so am i am i right she was angry in the dream but is she really that oppositional and i was thinking that very thought when suddenly the phone rang with a robocall and it was, it said, this is Barbara Streisand. Where is it written that the, and it was one of her political calls. I said, I guess, I guess she can be an opposing personality. A little later I said, well, okay, introverted intuition, Barbara Streisand, my God, she's gotten Grammy awards. She's fantastically good with sensation and music and this and that. So it came out that she was being, uh, interviewed in the New York Times for her first jazz record a few years ago. And the interviewer, wonderful, generous interview, and she was very, as always a wonderful interview subject. And uh, uh, the, the per person said, uh, now, when you, when you do your, your songs, they're so, the sound is so carefully arranged. Do, do you work out your arrangements on the piano first uh, or, and, uh, then the orchestrator takes over or how, how is it done? And she said, oh, I don't, I don't use the piano. I, I don't read music. So my gosh, she did. So yes, she did it all intuitively, you know? So I think my type designation is reasonable. I don't know her and I apologize to her if, if I'm not trying to say that I, but my psyche picked up on an introverted intuitive star who um, had a very strong, assertive uh, personality. And that was a side of me. And, and that was something that I needed to become aware of, that I could be seductive, I could be passive aggressive, I could be avoidant, I could be paranoid, but above all, I could just push back at anything. And I had to look at that side of myself. So that's one part of the shadow. Another part is the cynex part, which is an archetype of withering authority where you talk down to people. And a third part is the trickster, which is the ability to put other people in double binds, a wonderful, wonderful ability when they put you in a double bind to be able to put them back in a double bind. And finally, my demonic side, which can be undermining, to learn that there were archetypes uh, that's where I think, so whether the, I, whether the typology, that's specific, I've checked it out for myself and I think it works, but it's more important to know that we have these archetypes and why do we have them? Why do we have a shadow? I think it's because we have to defend ourselves. I mean, uh, what I, what I loved about Barbara Streisand and why my psyche picked it up is that she was born around the same year I was and she found a way to defend herself in a world that might not have let her do what she did had she not had such a strong personality. So defenses of the self are nothing to be ashamed of or nothing to see as bad, but they are our shadow and, and they sometimes come on too strong or the, the part of them that comes on too strong at least has its value, but it also has to be looked at. Jungians don't look down on the shadow, but they, but they want us to become aware of it. And I, and I picked up on that tradition and I still have it. And I hope I'm saying it in a way that doesn't sound 
more than that there are archetypal defenses in all of us that we need to become aware of. Otherwise, they take on a life of their own and they replace our personality. And uh, I think that's a shame when it happens. I think that's a shame when it happens. And so we draw on strong personalities in the outer world to symbolize these parts of ourselves that have their strengths. And because they have their strengths, they also have their limitations. Dr. Baby, we're about five minutes away from the end of the hour. Do you have time for one more question? Of course I do. Awesome. Uh, Herodas, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yes, thank you. Um, I was wondering, uh, Dr. Bibi, does, uh, does the type of uh, any person change, can change uh, at any point in, in their life at all, or maybe a few times? Thank you. Well, Jung said this in his interview face-to-face uh, uh, -face two years before he died uh, that was broadcast on uh, uh, British Broadcasting System, uh, interviewed by John Freeman, who later edited the famous book, Man and Assembles. And Jung says, well, the type is nothing static. And I, and he meant by that different emphases at different times. So here I am talking about a, a kind of a innate uh, self that we have with a certain structure. How does it fit? It, I had the great good fortune to meet with Anelia Yaffe, who was the person who uh, put together uh, the book of Jung's um, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Uh, uh, and so, so she was 90 years old, and at the time that I uh, went to see her um, uh, in Zurich, she had become essentially blind and was living alone still in the same apartment. And I was very nervous about meeting this person, especially with my inferior sensation and tendency to get times and places wrong. So I arrived about... 25 minutes earlier uh, to the appointment and started pacing around the building until I till the time would come and here it was in a suburb of uh, or areas of Zurich and the superintendent of the building uh, the caretaker of the building saw me there and asked if he could help me and uh, uh, I said oh I have an appointment with Fra Yaffe but I it's not until 11 o'clock and I I, I want I'm just waiting to, oh, no problem. And he rang her doorbell, it took me like 10 minutes early. I was absolutely mortified. And uh, uh, so I went up and I was feeling really awful about coming. But of course she couldn't see my face, but it, she, it, she, she quickly, uh, told me, I don't even know if she said that she couldn't see, but she's just, she, she felt my face so that she could see uh, with her hands what it was like. And uh, she said, oh, very nice, she said. And, and then she said, um, uh, I have, uh, I, I, can, I can offer you some coffee or tea. Tea, I have uh, caffeinated or herbal. And I said, well, I'll take some herbal tea. And uh, I was not drinking coffee at that time and being very pure and uh, Northern Californian. And so here she went out and there was a tea bag in boiled hot water. And this, then this, she deftly with her hands slipped a couple of chocolate chip cookies on the saucer as she handed it to me, she said, it's not much, it's, it's your punishment for being early. She had the best extroverted feeling I have ever seen in a human being. She had auxiliary extroverted feeling, I think. And we got into a conversation after that of that type and things I was interested in. And I asked about typology and I asked about her typology and she said, well, you know, I was always introverted intuitive, you know, and I came to Zurich and I worked with Jung, but now I'm old and I'm blind and I have to feel my way around. So I've become an extroverted sensation type. So that's what she meant, you know. I don't think her type had changed. 
<laughs> my God. But uh, I think she, you could feel the structure of an introverted intuitive with extroverted feeling and the way she took care of me, I will never forget. Um, but she was right. What was absolutely not demonic, but daimonic, those hands producing the chocolate chip cookies and her immediacy and her engagement with my shame. Uh, that was extroverted sensation and it was extraordinary. It was angelic. And so that's where she was. So yes, we move around and, and, and some of the archetypal potentials that get realized are absolutely spectacular as they were in her case. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goldenshadoworg. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.